This podcast is brought to you by its financial supporters on Venmo, PayPal, and Patreon. Zach, Breck, Jed, Tom, Alex, Christine, Jeff, William, Mark, Danny, Dave, Nick, Kelly, Ryan, Marta, Cam, Andy, Patty, Tim, Paul, Andrew, John, and Chris. Thank you for helping me to have these conversations and to create this content. Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public, and it's something that I want to share. The following is a conversation with Ilya Ponomarev. Ilya is an entrepreneur, a former member of the Russian Duma, a political adversary of Vladimir Putin, a friend of Ukrainian President Zelensky, and a resident of Ukraine currently fighting for his life and the future of his adopted homeland. During our conversation, Ilya talks about his political career in Russia, Russian versus American culture, his assessment of the character and personality of both Putin and Zelensky. Russia's intelligence failure and miscalculation prior to the war, the lies perpetrated by Putin to justify the invasion, his view that Ukraine is winning and will win the war, the risk of a nuclear exchange, his message for America and the free world, and his belief that Putin will be dead within one year. I met Ilya in 2015 when he was visiting San Francisco to give an interview at the World Affairs Council. He had recently been banished from Russia best known for being the Russian Duma's lone dissenting vote, 445 to 1, against Russia's annexation of Crimea. He is one heroic example out of millions in Ukraine, a man fighting for democracy and freedom and willing to risk his life for them. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Ilya Ponomarev. Let's start at the beginning and just, I want to say personally, um, just thank you for doing this. The last time I saw you, I believe was 2015 in San Francisco. Uh, and correct. at that time, I believe you were giving a presentation to the world affairs council about your life and about what you had endured since your 2014 vote against the invasion of Crimea for people who, in America who don't yet know much or anything about your life. I'd love to give them an opportunity to learn very quickly a little bit about who you are and what your history is in Russia and specifically in, Ru in Russian politics um, more generally. Uh, sure. I am originally a technology entrepreneur. I uh, started pretty early when I was 14. I had two my uh, startups in IT uh, in the beginning of 90s and uh, so made two successful exits from them. Uh, and uh, then the business of uh, the second one was acquired by Schlumberger, a company which is very well known in Texas, uh, <laughs> where we're speaking from. Uh, and I uh, became uh, uh, director for business development in serious countries, but my job was to pick up new technologies and then scout them worldwide. Uh, so I got a lot of international uh, experience and expertise at that uh, at that time. And then I uh, joined Yukos oil company as we uh, made a strategic alliance between Schlumberger and Yukos. 
and which made uh, UCAS the largest and the most successful uh, Russian oil company. And I was uh, vice president for technologies there, working with Mikhail Khodorkovsky. In 2003, Mikhail Khodorkovsky was sent to jail by Vladimir Putin uh, for uh, absolutely uh, fraudulent and uh, illegal accusations uh, that were uh, brought against him. And uh, I was lucky enough to decide to go into politics half a year before uh, Khodorkovsky was imprisoned. And that was the, probably the only reason why I stayed uh, uh, free and not, uh, and not behind bars, because all my, all my, all my friends went there. Um, uh, and uh, then it was a good 15 years of doing politics for me. You know, I never could have guessed so because I always was thinking about myself again as an entrepreneur. So uh, uh, politics was uh, more like social entrepreneurship for, uh, for myself. Um, and uh, at the end of the day, uh, in uh, 2014, as you correctly said, uh, I voted against the annexation of uh, Crimea. I happened to be the only person to do this. I, I, I had several votes where I was the uh, lone vote against this and that uh, before I started. Uh, firstly, when I was uh, uh, the only person uh, to vote against so-called Dima Yakovlev law, which prohibited uh, adoption of uh, Russian orphans uh, by Americans. Uh, then I was the only person who uh, stayed stood against uh, uh, so-called gay propaganda law against uh, 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 LGBT community. And then it was Crimea, and uh, like that one uh, was considered by Kremlin as enough is enough. And uh, they picked up the moment when I was on a business trip uh, in uh, July uh, 2014 and just simply restricted me from coming back to Russia so that I could not cross the border back to my own country. Uh, after that, I uh, still for two years, I was member of parliament in absentia. In general, I was elected uh, to the parliament in 2007, representing Siberia, in particular Novosibirsk, our capital of innovations, capital of Siberia. Uh, and uh, since 2014 and up to 2016, when my term ended, uh, I was uh, basically member of parliament in absentia. Uh, voting uh, remotely, I smuggled my voting card into the country, and my friend Dmitry Gudkov was pressing buttons for me. <laughs> so that, was, that was how 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 it was working. And in 2016, I moved to uh, Ukraine. In Ukraine, I basically returned uh, to the business career. Uh, I was uh, what is called a serial SPAC entrepreneur. I was creating SPACs. As, uh, as, uh, these days, uh, they are probably one of the most fashionable tools on the stock market uh, in the U.S. By the time we have started them, uh, you know, nobody yet knew know about this mechanism, but it was very useful to raise money for uh, Ukrainian industry and in particular Ukrainian energy and natural resources. And recently we were working on numerous projects in uh, uh, so-called battery materials. So uh, the materials which are needed for the new economy like lithium, uh, beryllium uh, and, and other, 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 other stuff like that. So that, that's more or less what I was doing when the war started. 
<laughs> yeah, I I knew that after you had spent time in the U.S. that you had gone back to the Ukraine, and I think I also knew that you lived in in Kiev. I want to talk about this year because I know you've done plenty of interviews since the war has started, and I'm wondering from your perspective if this is a situation that you foresaw. You know, was this something in your mind that you thought was an inevitability? I know you know Vladimir Putin personally. He's, you know, you are one of his most public foes. Is this a scenario that you, prior to February of 2022, thought was likely to occur? Or was this something that you still thought was very unlikely to happen? Frankly speaking, uh, you know, I thought that... uh, you guys, Americans, and Vladimir Putin from his side uh, are both bluffing and yeah. uh, playing political games for one with another. Uh, and uh, I never believed that this war can actually uh, uh, erupt in such a tremendous magnitude. So the, the, the war uh, wasn't going in Ukraine from 2014, no doubt and the aggression happened with the annexation of Crimea and then it continued with uh, fighting in Donbass uh, but it was all done you know proxies you know cautiously you know it's not us you know uh, Malaysian uh, Boeing was shot no you know it's, it's not us you know the, the deniability of everything uh, uh, so I thought that uh, Putin being a very reasonable person, and I know that he is a reasonable person, he is not a crazy guy, uh, uh, that for him it would be obvious that uh, uh, this invasion would be extremely risky, and uh, at the end of the day outright dangerous for himself. So I was absolutely sure that he would not dare. Uh, but I was mistaken. Uh, I think that uh, the reason for this is that uh, probably he was making his decisions uh, based on very inaccurate analytics and very bad intel that he was getting uh, from his cronies, uh, from his inner circle, uh, which all tried to uh, uh, be nice to their leader and to tell him what he wants to hear. So they were telling him that Ukraine is weak, that uh, the uh, uh, president is extremely unpopular, you know, a little bit of push, and uh, the whole system would would collapse. Um, And also he was reading uh, Western analytics, where also people were saying that uh, Kyiv would fall at maximum within uh, six days. Uh, from the beginning of the invasion. So he was probably thinking that, okay, so uh, a small victorious war uh, never hurt any any politician. And uh, probably that was his calculus. But uh, he was uh, gravely mistaken, and uh, Ukrainians are fighting back, and they're actually winning this war. And uh, right now, I think that for Vladimir Putin, uh, the consequences would be uh, very tough. Yeah. You said earlier, just in that statement, that you that Vladimir Putin is a reasonable man. And I know that you know him um, quite well in a way that very few people in this world 
do know him. For people in the West, for people in America who are just getting caught up and brushing up on Russian history and near-term Russian history, how do you explain who this man is? You know him. When people ask you who Vladimir Putin is, how do you describe him? Well, you know, it's uh, uh, pretty easy to describe him with one word. He's a mobster. Uh, he's literally a mobster. Yeah. Uh, he's a mafia-type personality uh, who cares a lot about his personal power, about his personal position, about respect, and uh, who values primarily loyalty in his people. Uh, and uh, he tries to link every single person who works for him within a vicious circle uh, of uh, crimes and uh, corruption and uh, um, different things uh, uh, that they would never have uh, done uh, by themselves, but uh, that guarantee them their position within the system. And uh, uh, I saw this many times uh, in Russian um, chain of command and uh, vertical of power that if uh, there is uh, no criminal offense against you, if there is no compromise uh, uh, against yourself, you would never be able to get into any decent position. You would never be uh, allowed to become a mayor to become a high-ranking bureaucrat, to, to, to become a governor or, or a minister. You have to steal to become mm. Putin's official. That's, that's his principle. Yeah. I want to talk to you about your experience when the invasion occurred. As you just said earlier, you know, this was not something that you thought was likely to happen, that it was mostly political posturing, if I'm understanding you correctly, between the Russians mm -hmm. and, and the West and the Americans. What do you remember from that day of the invasion and your own mentality in realizing that you had been mistaken? Where were you? What do you recall about you know, those 6, 12, 24 hours? Uh, you know, uh, the day before, I was in Dubai, uh, and I was meeting with my partners, and we had certain business negotiations there, and everybody was telling me, you know, Western media is full of predictions that the war would erupt every given moment. Uh, don't go back to Ukraine. And I said, no, 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 guys, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's, uh, <laughs> that, that, that's not who I am, you know. Uh, I should go there. Uh, especially if the war would erupt, I need to be there. Uh, I need to be uh, with my new country. I need uh, to be at home. I need to fight and I need to defeat Putin. Because uh, that's, uh, that's my goal. Uh, and uh, I caught the last plane on the 23rd uh, and I landed in Kiev uh, like uh, 1 a.m. or something like this. And as we know, at uh, 4 a.m. or 4.30 a.m., the bombings have started. Uh, but uh, I live in a very uh, quiet neighborhood of uh, Kiev, so they were not hurt uh, in my house. So... I woke up uh, normally in the morning and, uh, you know, was looking at my phone, 
seeing that oh, looks like the war has started. So uh, <laughs> I dressed up, uh, jumped the car, and uh, moved uh, to the nearest uh, uh, military recruiting post. Uh, there were two two main uh, locations uh, on two sides of uh, Dnipro River, uh, which were specifically assigned for people who wants to join uh, uh, so-called territorial defense. That's uh, like Ukrainian militia, you know, so volunteers uh, who are joining military to uh, find uh, the aggression. Uh, I, I would be very frank that I also was under impression that, okay, so if the war has started, then, um, uh, then the Russian soldiers would be pretty soon in Kyiv. I was not thinking that uh, it's about six days or something. I was thinking that it would be really soon because Kyiv is not that far from the northern border. Uh, of uh, Ukraine. That's why for me it was very important to uh, get the weapons uh, and uh, prepare to fight. And uh, so I, uh, I volunteered and uh, by the evening of the same day, uh, you know, I was already in a certain regiment with uh, certain assignments uh, and uh, preparing uh, preparing to fight and uh, you know I in the first night I was I, I wouldn't say that I was scared but uh, uh, we were thinking that that we may die this that night yeah I know that we were emailing during that time and that was my first thought as well um, I have to say as a Westerner and as an American just following this online I think it's nearly universal the impressiveness of the way that the Ukrainians from the perception that I'm seeing this from have been able to fight back and endure. And I, I know you are in the inner circles of um, Ukrainian political leadership. I'd love to get your thoughts on, you know, everyone in the world now knows who Zelensky is and you've been walking in those inner orbits for quite some time. Who is he? And what was your assessment of the state of the political environment in Ukraine prior to the war? Well, firstly, uh, well, I will say that Zelensky is simply a nice guy. Uh, <laughs> he is, uh, no, he is, he is. That, that's, that's what he is. That's his main characteristic. Um, he's very likable and uh, um, he's sincere. That's what is very uh, rare among politicians in general, because he's not a politician. And uh, all his personal drawbacks, uh, they uh, are being the continuation of his strengths. Uh, He is not a professional. He is not a professional politician. He never had any experience in in the government uh, and in public administration. And that's why, obviously, he was doing a lot of mistakes uh, in the time of peace. And uh, however high his popular support was at the time when he was elected, um, uh, his approvals were slipping uh, more more and more. And I think that was one of the reasons why uh, um, Putin... um, was so much mistaken because obviously he also saw uh, the popular polls 
and he was seeing that uh, okay so uh, Zelensky is currently supported you know by around 40 percent Ukrainians even maybe 37 um, that's not that high you know so it's 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 very easy easy to to kick him a little bit and also he's not uh, a military guy uh, he would not fight uh, he's an actor and uh, also he is Jewish and uh, you know many people uh, of that culture they like to preserve lives so that he would not uh, participate in the bloodshed you know that he would just resign and then the Americans that they would uh, evacuate him and if the leader is out then all others would immediately resign but we know that Zelensky behaved totally differently and again you know if uh, if Putin would read a little bit about his psychological <laughs> profile he would understand that all his drawbacks in the in the in the time of war would immediately become his strengths that the guy is stubborn the the guy uh, is very committed uh, the uh, guy has principles uh, and the guy knows about his place in history he is very dedicated person so uh, actually for zelensky now it's the moment of of, of truth uh, yeah. which he's turned into the moment of triumph because uh, he right now is in his character you know even even if we talk about Zelensky as an actor then right now is his prime role in his in his life and uh, he's doing his job great yeah you said earlier that you could sum up Vladimir Putin in one word and that word would be was mobster you know it does seem like western people are getting more familiar with his argument for war to the Russian people. And I know you have spent a lot of your career in the information space, and it sounds like you are still involved in media. For people who are unfamiliar with Putin's argument to his own people, what did he say? What do you disagree with about what he said to the Russian people? And if any, what lies are still being told within Russia about the circumstances, the, the pretext for war itself? Uh, you know, um, Putin is so great in propaganda because usually he uh, uh, speaks 80% of truth <laughs> and 20% 20, 20 of outrageous lies, but, you know, they twist the truth in, in, in his personal benefit, you know. Uh, uh, what uh, he's selling to Russians, uh, he's playing on a very important national character, part of national character of Russians, which is very similar, by the way, to the national character of Americans. In general, I think that Russians are way closer psychologically to Americans than they are to Europeans. Uh, and I can give you a lot of examples of that. Uh, Russians fundamentally dislike and, and don't trust the government. They are very individualistic uh, to the country, what many people believe. They are extremely individualistic. Uh, and uh, they like campaigns uh, within the society. It's very easy to ignite them. Uh, and most of all, that they have a mission. Uh, for America, the mission is to spread uh, the torch of democracy. 
uh, in the world, uh, even when people are against this, you know, you still put in this torch on their territory. The same thing is about Russians. Russians also like to be liberators. They uh, also like to, to, to carry this torch of freedom to others. Uh, uh, and uh, that's what Putin was telling them. That uh, he was telling them, you see, that's our brother, the nation of Ukraine. Uh, and they are our brothers. You know, there's no, no, nobody is more close relatives than Russians and Ukrainians. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and uh, you see, uh, uh, they suffer. They live poorly. And why is that? It's because bloody Americans, bloody Europeans, you know, all other, other bastards, IMF, World Bank, they are sucking all the blood from our brothers and sisters. We need to liberate them. You know, they don't understand. They have been zombified by Western propaganda. And uh, I am telling you the truth, guys. You know, we, we, we need, even, even if it's against our immediate interest, if it makes us suffer economically, but no problem. We will survive, but we will liberate our brother Ukrainians. And that's exactly what Russians thinking they are doing right now because it's extremely mm, pleasant for them, uh, uh, you know, to feel themselves as being the liberators. And especially in all the uh, magnitude of social frustration that exists in the modern days Russia because Putin actually stripped Russians of all the means to change the power, to decide about their future, you know, they, they are just following certain tracks uh, uh, which they have no power of. Uh, and here, they suddenly become important. And uh, that's why he uh, reminds them about the glory of uh, Russian people during World War II. You know, how we liberated all of Europe against fascists. And, and as, uh, so we need to repeat it, you know, in a small scale, only for Ukraine. But they repeat that great deed that our grandparents uh, uh, have done. And obviously, you know, that inspires a lot of people. And when they're coming to Ukraine, they see something totally different. Uh, they do not recognize where are all those fascists, where are all those Nazis, uh, you know. And that's why the morale of Russian army is uh, falling significantly because they, you know, it's a cognitive dissonance, you know, in, in, in their eyes. And now they, they start to think, okay, maybe then all of Ukrainians are neo-Nazis. Maybe like good Ukrainians, they somehow went away. And those who remain, you know, because they are shooting at, at, at Russians, literally every single person is shooting at, at Russians. It's, uh, mm -hmm. You cannot imagine the degree of uh, the resistance that uh, uh, they are seeing on uh, Ukrainian soil. And uh, they, uh, they, they start to die and they start to um, try to get revenge uh, from uh, their friends, you know, from their comrades, which felt uh, uh, in, in Ukraine, which, which were killed in action. And uh, that's uh, where all those rapes are coming from and uh, uh, tortures of the civilians, all those awful atrocities that are being committed in, uh, in, in, in Ukraine because people are totally disoriented. You know, they do not understand what's going on, what's happening. Yeah, it seems to me that there, there are two things going on. There is the actual physical war and then there is the information warfare. 
And I know you have spent a lot of time in that space. What is your assessment? And I should say for the listeners, we're talking on April 7th, 2022. What is your assessment currently of the cognitive dissonance or the information that has penetrated the Russian soldiers themselves? What's your take on their assessment of the situation? Uh, you know, there is a phrase uh, of uh, a great Russian writer uh, that it's hard to fool me, but I like to be fooled myself. Uh, and uh, that's exactly what is happening to Russians these days, because what, what I was telling you about the idea with which they are coming to Ukraine is the idea which is extremely appealing to every ordinary Russian that, you know, finally I have meaning in my life because mm -hmm. I'm doing some something good. Uh, I am liberating Ukrainians from that evil that they are suffering from. You know, and, you know, I'm a great guy. You know, I'm a good person. Mm. Uh, yes, uh, nobody called me to do this, but that's, you know, our leader who knows better. He understands what, what should be done. And yes, I'm ready to spill my blood, but help Ukrainians. And uh, that's why uh, uh, propaganda in Russia is so efficient. Because mm -hmm. he's telling Russians things that they really like to hear. Uh, that makes them feel great. Not because they're imperialists. There is a certain part of the population which is imperialist. But it's a tiny minority. Majority is not imperialist. They don't care. But uh, to like themselves, to feel themselves great because they're doing something good, that's what propaganda uh, is uh, playing with. And then when... Uh, the reality and this picture comes to a conflict. Uh, they pretend to ignore the reality because if you would agree that you are not a good guy, that you are actually evil person, that you are actually fascist, that it's not you are repeating the fight against fascism. It's Ukrainians who are actually repeating the fight against uh, fascism. And then now it's a mental roadblock in your head. You, uh, yeah, you can do nothing about it because then what, what should I do? Commit suicide? Or should I take a machine gun and, and start fighting against Putin? But he's so strong. And um, so it's not only a question uh, of, uh, of propaganda and, and uh, disinformation. It's also a question of what people like to admit and what they, they're not ready to admit. Um, to give you an example, I'm sorry for such a long answer, but I think it is important. Yeah. Uh, we made a, a story uh, on our uh, media channel, which now we created to broadcast for Russians, uh, working from Ukraine. Uh, we made an interview with a lady from California, a Russian lady. Uh, she lives in California for like 20 years uh, already, full time. She does not listen to Russian TV channels. She reads, uh, obviously, social media, but uh, she's not affected by uh, Putin's uh, propaganda. That's, that's what she, she watches uh, CNN, 
ну, чего Трамп сошли, probably watches Fox News, yes, but uh, never, never, nevertheless, American media and, uh, and, not, uh, and not Russian media. And uh, she does not believe that uh, Russia is doing all those things in, in Ukraine, despite everything that she sees in, in, in her life, on her TV screen. Uh, and when we were asking her, you know, why, you know, don't you, you know, believe like what everybody, literally everybody is saying, so, no, no, this, you, you, you should understand, we Russians, we are not like that. We Russians, we cannot be fascist, period. So if somebody is uh, telling me that we are fascists, that means that he is lying. Because yeah. simply it's not possible. Yeah. And how long do you think that narrative can hold? And maybe it's indefinitely, but how do you think about that generally for the Russian people? It's not indefinite. Um, it's, uh, it's the same thing with uh, Nazi Germany. You know, when you are victorious, you can ignore facts or when you think you are victorious, right? Uh, then you can ignore facts. But uh, when you are losing, you start asking questions. Why are we losing? So as soon as Russians will start to recognize that they are losing, and uh, that picture is uh, being made from different uh, different pieces, you know. So it's uh, <coughs> it's uh, the dead bodies which are coming back home. It's uh, some. Uh, confessions that uh, the generals are are making you know uh, even like they don't want to admit that uh, they are not victorious but you know in in their speeches you know you can actually understand something then uh, obviously uh, that's the effect of sanctions um, which are taking their toll as well on the uh, life of ordinary Russians so altogether you know that's mounting up but it requires time And uh, I think that a uh, couple more months, I think uh, um, it, uh, it would last. Uh, my uh, rough estimate is just that altogether it should be like half a year from the very beginning to the moment when uh, Russians will start to understand something. So my forecast is that August is probably would be the time when, when Russians will start asking questions uh, for Vladimir Putin. That's why he's in a hurry. He uh, wanted uh, this to be a blitzkrieg uh, mm -hmm. from uh, from uh, the very beginning. It already didn't work. Right now, I think that he would try to claim certain victory by May 9th, which is for Russians is a um, very symbolic and very important day. It's the main national holiday, the victory day, what everybody celebrates on May, May 8th. Uh, in Russia, we celebrate it on May 9th, uh, uh, and I think that Vladimir Putin wants to claim victory at that very day. Yeah. You said earlier in the conversation that when you took the flight in from, I think it was Dubai, and the war started the following day, you thought it was very likely that the Russians would march on Kyiv very quickly. That has not happened How do you, what do you make of that in your assessment militarily of what has happened in that region of the war specifically? How do you explain the success of the Ukrainians and the failure of the Russians in Kyiv specifically? Um, firstly, obviously, there was a 
uh, a tactical defeat uh, for Russian forces in the very first day. Because I think that the immediate plan was to capture uh, an uh, uh, air base, which is right next to Kiev, um, and then deploy uh, uh, airborne rangers there, the most capable uh, military uh, uh, groups in, in the Russian army, so that they would march on, on Kiev and, and capture it but uh, they faced a lot of resistance um, at that base. It was in Gastomo, it's like 30 kilometers to the west from Kyiv. Uh, they faced a lot of resistance from National Guard. Um, uh, the uh, helicopters, which were supposed to uh, cover uh, uh, the deployed troops uh, from the air, uh, they were forced uh, to fly away, they abandoned uh, 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 those who were on, on the ground already, and then uh, all of uh, all of them were just physically exterminated. Um, uh, and uh, obviously, that was a very bitter defeat, and the result of uh, extremely bad planning uh, uh, of uh, of the operation. But that was a tactical thing with that that allowed Kiev to uh, stand uh, during the very first night and. Uh, <laughs> regiment you know the one i was in we were in kiev and and the the second one uh, actually was uh, part of that battle um, uh, but uh, strategically uh, obviously the defeat is coming from the fact that ukrainians uh, uh, have managed to mobilize uh, uh, a lot of ordinary citizen it's uh, it's a huge uh, rise in patriotic feelings within Ukrainians. Um, I uh, saw those cues uh, to the recruiting posts. Uh, uh, at first, there was simply not enough weapons. There was no not enough vacancies even in the partisan forces and the guerrilla forces. You know, you, they cannot accept everybody. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you have to sign your name. You know. And, <laughs> then we'll, we'll call, 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 call you later. You see, you really know, too many people, um, and uh, obviously that was not expected uh, um, by uh, Kremlin, and uh, that 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 makes me extremely puzzled because I think that Putin uh, that was one of the reasons why I was saying that he would not invade. It was uh, Putin has started his first very first presidential term with the war in Chechnya. And uh, he knows very well uh, that it's impossible to claim victory over uh, the nation which fights against you as one. And uh, Putin very smartly at that time, he managed to split Chechens. And uh, he made an agreement with Kadyrov Sr. And now it's his son, Ramzan Kadyrov, which is uh, uh, running uh, Chechnya. But that was the key to the victory. So he was fighting Chechens uh, with the hand of Chechens. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, if he would have somebody within Ukraine who would be ready, you know, to open doors for Russian army, that would be a very different, uh, that would be a very different thing. But... Uh, now all of all of uh, the people of Ukraine they they stood as one, even uh, those cities uh, which were considered to be pro-Russian, like uh, Kharkiv or the same Mariupol, 
uh, or Odessa, uh, they all are now fighting against uh, uh, Russian army. Actually, uh, there is such a sad joke that uh, nobody has done more uh, for the building of Ukrainian nation uh, as Vladimir Putin. You know, Bandera or whoever else, they are coming, you know, so distant second. Um, uh, nobody has done more uh, for for building of Ukrainian nation but, uh, but Vladimir Putin. He united everyone against him. And I uh, now I'm like, you see, I'm smiling, but it's very uh, sad smile because uh, that means hatred for generations to come. And yeah. that means that uh, really, uh, indeed, brotherly nations, they uh, would be at very bad terms for many, many years. Yeah. And you have been living in this world. And I would be curious for the audience to have you explain or detail what an average day is like for you. I mean, you appear to be I don't know if you're in a bunker right now or where exactly you are. You said before we started recording that there are missiles flying overhead. What's an average day look like for you and your life and, and your your comrades who you're fighting with? Well, I uh, I cannot say many things because some of, <laughs> some of them are <laughs> some some of them are sensitive. Uh, no, but uh, I have to. Comes with to I would say undisclosed location yeah. uh, because uh, I am on the hunt list um, and right now Russian forces kicked out uh, uh, from uh, Kiev uh, vicinity, but nevertheless, uh, you know, from time to time, uh, different uh, sabotage groups are being uh, discovered, and uh, that's why you know we have to. Uh, to make certain precautions. Uh, in uh, the uh, first uh, 24 hours, as I said, I was uh, within uh, uh, the outright military regiment, so I was uh, within the, uh, the military environment, uh, uh, so, so to say, and uh, uh, was sleeping there. Now, um, you know, we are doing a certain uh, media project, as you correctly said, I know, I'm now connected to media. Um, and that's uh, a dedicated TV channel that we have created, uh, uh, which is uh, working in Russian language from Ukraine, but speaking mm -hmm. to Russians in Russia. Mm -hmm. uh, we are using all the different types of media. We're using uh, YouTube, we are using... Uh, Telegram, we, we, we are using TikTok, we are using Contact, we are using Facebook, so we are like everywhere. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to use uh, all the social tools and media to communicate with Russians. And uh, firstly, obviously, to deliver them the truth about what's going on in, uh, uh, in Ukraine. And we are the only media which stayed like this, you know, because Putin has closed everyone inside Russia. Uh, and uh, obviously in Ukraine, nobody is talking to Russians. You know, there are Russian media, Russian language media uh, of Ukrainian origin, but they, they, they are speaking to Ukrainians in Russian, uh, not speaking yep. to Russians uh, in, in, in Russian. So we, we are the only of, of, of its kind. 
Uh, and uh, to my mind, it's uh, it's pretty important. We don't have that huge audience right now. Our daily audience is between million and uh, million and a half. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, it's substantial. Um, and uh, we're glad that, that, that we managed to do this. And it is important, more important than, uh, than outright military uh fighting uh, especially that uh, there are no troops uh, around kiev at this very moment yeah and this may be a repeat of some facts that you have already talked about during this conversation but what is your primary message for the russian people um that the uh, root of all the problems is vladimir putin and his clique. Probably that's that's the key message. Um, obviously, uh, uh, Ukrainians right now they have very emotional reaction on what's going on. You know, so many people killed, so many civilians, and they sometimes uh, say, uh, "All Russians are useless." That uh, it's your guys' uh, fault. Everybody, everybody shares the guilt. Um, and to my mind that we all share the responsibility, but not everyone who shares the guilt, because there were several, quite a lot of people, you know, who stood against the war from the very beginning. They, they didn't do enough to remove Vladimir Putin from power. And that's why they do share the responsibility. Everyone with the Russian passport shares the responsibility, but they don't share the guilt. And that's yeah. like that's two two separate uh, things. And we are trying to talk to these people, and we are trying yeah. to inspire them um, to get engaged uh, in changing of power. That uh, not to run away. Uh, you know, I I I cannot blame anyone who decided to leave Russia, obviously. Uh, but uh, that's not uh, our way, and. Uh, uh, when we were talking about my bio, I never left Russia on my own. You know, I was not allowed to return, so I physically couldn't do it. Um, uh, otherwise, I would have never left Russia on my own. But uh, right now, we need to convince as many people as possible to stay within the country and fight. Yeah. You said earlier in the conversation, too, that you you believe that Ukraine is winning the war. And I would want to ask you, what do you need? What is the message that you would send to the West, to America in general, about what is necessary in order to continue the momentum, the forward momentum and the victory of Ukraine in the war? Obviously, the most important thing for us is no-fly zone. Is mm. uh, no-fly zone is needed for two things. Uh, firstly, uh, to prevent losing more civilian lives, because what Russian army is doing, they they cannot capture the cities, so they start to physically eliminate those cities. They are just shelling. Um, the uh, residential areas, they are trying to provoke people of those cities to rebel against their leaders 
to say, okay, we 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 surrender, just please don't fight. And again, they are reaching the opposite uh, uh, result, but they are killing a lot of people. And uh, they are doing it using missiles and, uh, and uh, bombers. Uh, so that's why no-fly zone is important for that. But also no-fly zone is important uh, for counter-offensive. Because uh, right now Ukrainians are doing marvelously in uh, resisting, in uh, doing uh, partisan war, in uh, shooting in the backs of uh, Russian soldiers, mm-hmm. in uh, destroying uh, the fuel tanks, in uh, using again things to the United States and uh, to British, they're using javelins and then laws uh, to destroy tanks. But to uh, advance, you need to use your own tanks. Mm. And when you don't control the skies, you cannot do this because they're just being uh, physically destroyed. So infantry is fine, but uh, any of the heavy armored equipment which is needed to advance cannot be used because uh, skies are occupied by Russian airplanes. Yeah, I I have to bring this up because I think it must be something that's on your mind. I think it is something that some Americans are also thinking about, which is given that reality, which you just articulated of Ukraine fighting back and in many ways winning the war as it is, the mobster in charge of the Russian military and the Russian people has a nuclear arsenal and there is a non-zero percent chance that a mobster, if cornered, might use such a weapon. And I I would be remiss if I didn't talk to you about how you think about that problem. You know, first, I guess, how do you think about the nuclear threat? And second, what do you think is to avert a potential nuclear scenario how do you see this unfolding in such a way that that outcome could be prevented in the first place? Um, firstly, uh, I want to say that Putin is doing his best uh, to make the West believe that he's crazy and, and is capable of using the nuclear weapons. Uh, that he is fanatic, that he is mad. Um, that uh, he doesn't care about nothing, you know, that he can use the, the nukes. That's his strategic objective. And unfortunately, you know, as we are discussing this, he is successful because uh, you do believe that he can do it. Okay. Um, I, I would say that, uh, you know, I also think that the chance is not zero, but my mind is pretty minimal. And why I do think so uh, is look at uh, how he meets his own stuff. Uh, a very, very, very long table. <laughs> you know. He's paranoid. He is afraid for his life. Uh, would such a guy start a suicidal nuclear attack? Because he knows that if he starts a nuclear attack, then it would be a counter-strike on him. That's a yeah. guaranteed thing. So, no, I, I, I can never believe 
that the guy would commit a suicide. Secondly, uh, there is uh, one great game uh, that Russians like to play, uh, you know, in, 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 in the way the propaganda works and the way the diplomacy works, is uh, Mr. Putin likes to speak about asymmetrical measures. Hmm. When he says, ah, you Americans, you have, you know, a very, very expensive weapons that you just recently announced, this and that. And we in Russia, we have something very cheap, asymmetrical, which we can apply, and all your efforts would be useless. And uh, Putin, being a former KGB guy, he's extremely afraid of secret covered operations. He remembers how you guys have recovered Bin Laden, for example. Yep. He believes uh, that it was uh, Americans uh, who were standing behind the assassination of many world leaders. He remembers Noriega from Panama, you know, which was kidnapped by uh, 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 American Marines. Mm. Uh, so uh, that's the threat that is real for him, way more real than the nukes. So he does not believe that you guys would use nukes on him because, you know, the cost of life in the West is way higher than the cost of life in, in the East. But that you guys would uh, recover him from whatever bunker he's sitting, <laughs> that he would believe. <laughs> yeah. And from your vantage point, again, in having this conversation in early April of 2022, what is the best case outcome from your perspective, given the current circumstances, the current knowledge that you have, how do you foresee that best case scenario unfolding for Ukraine in general? What does that look like? I think that uh, Ukraine is already winning this war. And uh, I think now it's the biggest question mark is when and what would be the price? Mm. Um, uh, so, and that's again why Ukraine needs Western assistance is because it's paying very high price. Uh, and frankly, it's not fair because Putin is a threat uh, for the rest of the world. It's a threat for all of Europe. And right now, the West is trying with money by Ukrainian blood to uh, stop this fire. Mm. And, uh, you know, I don't think that's a fair approach, frankly speaking. Yeah, uh, but um, then um, there is no other outcome but one. Uh, uh, no dictator ever uh, escaped uh, the fate of his removal and usually death after they lost the they lost the war. Uh, and Putin would not be an exception. So I think that Putin is already a dead man. Uh, he maybe doesn't know it yet, but he's a dead man. Uh, when that would happen, most likely within a year from now. How that would happen, I don't know. That may happen through a palace coup, when uh, his own uh, inner circle or a little bit outer circle would say enough is enough and uh, would assassinate him. 
uh, or it may be through a public revolt. You know, I would definitely prefer uh, uh, the latter rather than the former. Uh, but uh, at the end of the day, the, the end for Putin would be the same. So I think that we now have to think a lot about uh, who, who would be next and what his policies would be and uh, how Russia would look like. Because at the end of the day, as you correctly said, it's, uh, it's uh, number one nuclear power in the world. It's, uh, in terms of nuclear capacity, it's larger than the United States. And uh, if uh, Russia would start to collapse, and the probability for this is extremely high right now, I wouldn't say that it's guaranteed, but it's a high probability. Yeah. Um, then we should think about the future and uh, the global security. Yeah. You said this earlier about what the zeitgeist is amongst Americans. And I know you've spent a lot of time in America. That's where we met. And I think you're right that we have a gung-ho attitude about our, at least historically, maybe maybe not so much in the recent years, about our capacity to help the inevitable implementation of democracy across the world and that all people across the world will willingly accept that form of government to live under. And I think we have been deeply humbled in our failure to do that in a couple of instances in my own lifetime. My, This is, I think, another concern in America because of our own history that we think the elimination of a mobster from one of the great world powers will be inevitably better for the world without really considering oftentimes what the second order consequences might be of an even worse leader. I'm sure this is something you have thought about. How do you think through what is the likely successor to Putin? If you are correct that he is already a dead man and he has maybe 12 months to live or at least to be in power, what do you think are the possibilities or the probable outcome from his departure from power in Russia? Well, you know, uh, the likely successor I am. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, um, seriously speaking, uh, it's very hard to predict uh, because right now, uh, there is no recognized political force within the country which yeah. can inherit the power. Uh, I think that whoever Putin would pick up as his successor himself, if that would happen, which theoretically may happen, uh, uh, in the current situation would already not be stable uh, because there is no positive strategy for such a person. Uh, to uh, get away from all the sanctions and the consequences of war, he needs to radically change the course and uh, to damn Putin and, uh, you know, totally cut all the ties with him, which obviously for the successor would be, would be problematic. And uh, if not doing so, the continuation of Putinism uh, with the successor, then the successor would be inevitably weaker. And that means even more chaos and even less predictability. 
so that's why the scenario with the managed transit uh, to my mind is currently unlikely um, yeah, the variant with the palace cool is more likely but right now there is no obvious person uh, who can be the center of this school yeah, I think that uh, the only possible scenario would be when say oligarchs recruiting you know some people from the second layer around Putin the, so that layer which has uh, theoretical physical access to the body but not the very inner circle it's like paying money and that can yeah. be very random you know because you know who would take the bribe uh, who would be willing to accept cash uh, you know, in, in exchange for a certain future, that's very unpredictable because that circle is, is, is quite large. So, and uh, it's very hard to predict. In terms of um, popular revolt, Putin has eliminated uh, all even theoretical uh, possibilities for organized political uh, force which is on the streets and not in jail or not in immigration. Um, obviously, such people as Navalny, for example, uh, you know, they cannot participate in, in this battle because he's in jail. His people are outside the country. People like Khodorkovsky, outside the country, no network within Russia, they all are in jail. So uh, this, like two theoretical potential leaders, both basically cannot participate in whatever scenario of change of power. Yeah. Um, that, but the demand uh, for such a political force and such leaders, leader or leaders, uh, is obviously growing. And uh, this demand would be inevitably met with a supply. How that would happen, who knows? Who that would be, who knows? Um, again, Putin has done uh, so many effort uh, to glorify these uh, volunteers fighting in Donbas. So, uh, and they are position-minded in terms of Putin himself because they feel like they have been betrayed by Putin in 2014 and 2015. Uh, they also have uh, pretty uh, socialist, leftist. Uh, uh, economic views, they are very conservative politically, so they are, you know, they are Russian imperialists, so they are not left uh, by by definition, but they combine imperialist conservative uh, uh, political views with the leftist uh, economical platform. And uh, that makes them pretty popular inside the country, and uh, they may uh, jump uh, into the front very unexpectedly, and uh, they they could become the leaders of the revolt. Uh, but uh, maybe different, you know, there can be genuine leftists or uh, genuine uh, nationalists, uh, nationalists in general very much supporting Ukraine because their slogan was that we don't want uh, Soviet Union to be restored, we want Russia for Russians and Ukraine for Ukrainians. So they yeah. created a kind of nationalist international uh, 
uh, with uh, the uh, Ukrainian uh, freedom fighters and uh, and join forces with them. They can be also the uh, driving force uh, uh, for the revolution. Um, we we see how the history goes. Yeah, I would imagine, and I know we're beginning to wind the conversation down there. Just a couple things I want to go over with you before you go to bed. I'm sure you're absolutely exhausted. Um, one is about your own future. You know, you have been living in exile for many years. And if you're correct that Putin's days are numbers and there is likely to be a major shakeup in the Russian political system, how do you see your role potentially in that future system? You know, I just as an American and knowing your biography, you seem to be one of the few public figures who will have if the scenario is realized, come through this with his integrity intact. How do you, for yourself, think about your future in a potential future Russia? My future is bright. <laughs> but, uh, but my exact position would be for Russian people to decide. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, just one other thing I want to I want to go over with you. Um, you know, I know that in the last few weeks when we've been emailing, and you know, if there had been time that elapsed between when we had communicated, I thought there was a reasonable chance that you were dead. Um, and you have been fighting this battle against Putin for many years now, and. I, w I have to imagine that during that time, there must have been a time and a place or an evolution in yourself where you were comfortable giving your life for your own descent. Um, in some ways, I'm amazed that I'm even having this conversation with you, given your profile and given your own outspokenness and your relationship with the leadership in Russia. I'd love to hear you talk, if you can, about why you have decided to act in the way that you have. Why does it matter so much for you to be such a thorn in the side of these thugs? Um, and am I correct in assuming that you have already decided that this is a cause worthy of your life if that's what happens? You're absolutely right, obviously. Yeah. Um, you know, my answer for this is pretty simple. Uh, uh, do what you feel you need to do and let things happen. Uh, that's the principle I, I live. Uh, obviously, I can select the particular path and uh, um, I had an important decision in my life uh, back in uh, 2002 when I decided to go into politics in the very first place. Uh, and that decision was very much driven by what was happening in Russia, firstly in 1998 when the country defaulted um, and uh, that uh, instilled a lot of uh, poverty and chaos uh, uh, on Russians. Uh, 
but then when Putin also was coming to power in the year 2000, when he uh, made a, a huge attack on uh, the freedom of speech, and at mm-hmm. that time, uh, that also affected me directly because I was uh, planning to do one very interesting media project uh, with Ted Turner. And uh, he basically uh, got stuck between Putin and uh, the uh, journalists of uh, media station NTV. He volunteered to be the mediator, got screwed up by Putin, you know, left Russia. Our project collapsed because of this. You know, so that was like another push for me. And that time I made the decision that I should go into politics because uh, I just need all, all this nonsense to be fixed. And after that, I was simply doing what, what I had to do, uh, just uh, based on my principles, uh, on my upbringing, uh, on, uh, on my views. I was just trying to do honestly what, uh, what I need to do. I was always trying to be rational. I never tried to be emotional. I never tried to generate whatever like political hype. I always tried to be constructive, but principles are principles. And mm. And they led me to where I am now. Yeah. Well, in closing, I just want to say, as an American, as just a human being, I have so much respect for yourself and your your comrades who are fighting this fight. And I know I speak for hundreds of millions in the world, and it, it just expressing a deep admiration for what you are doing and for you specifically. I, this is such an, an honor and a privilege to be able to do this with you. And I, I hope I hope you are correct. And I hope the future, the potential future for Russia, the one that we've talked about today, it is realized and that, you know, maybe one day we can have a tall glass of vodka in Moscow together. Um, Thank you very much. Yes. And I think that, <laughs> yes, we do it. We do it in Kremlin. And for all the free people in this world. And I, we really, really, we uh, here are very sincere here in Ukraine. We really feel your support. We really would uh, wish that all Western politicians would do the same as ordinary people in the West. Um, but we do feel your support, and thank you very much for this. Thank you, Ilya. It's 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 amazing to see you, and obviously the best of luck. And I hope to talk to you again sometime soon. Thank you very much. Thank you, bro. Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. If you're finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show via the links below on Venmo, PayPal, or Patreon. Your support helps to make these conversations possible. 